Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the life and death of Gudina Tumsa, the Ethiopian Bonhoeffer, so-called, and his wife, Sahai Tolesa, who lived quite a bit longer than he did, but was imprisoned and tortured for 10 years. Despite the uh, very impressive name or uh, eponym given to Gudina, the, the Ethiopian Bonhoeffer, he is not still very well known. Um, outside of Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, everyone knows him and admires him greatly. There's a foundation set up in his honor by his children, but still the story is not well known, um, especially in the North Atlantic region. So we are going to share this story with you today. And I think, Sarah, you can begin by sharing with our listeners how you got interested in this story and what role you've played in publicizing it. Yeah, so um, a number of years ago, I met my good friend Samuel Jonas Deressa, himself an Ethiopian Lutheran pastor and theologian, and we were just talking, and he told me about this remarkable figure in um, in his country's history. And so over time, as our friendship grew, he helped me get or he helped me track down. Um, the publications of Gudina's writings. These were in little, very thin volumes put together and published in Ethiopia, collecting his writings. There were also some papers about him, um, even a kind of like table talk of people remembering things they'd heard Gudina say. And I was really, you know, excited and moved by this story. Um, and, you know, I, I got the basic details of what had happened to him, but nothing, you know, really kind of like a biography or anything. But then Samuel mentioned to me that uh, there was an edition of their story told by his wife, Sahai Tolesa, that had been published in German. So since I can read German reasonably well, I tracked down the book and I got it and I read it and I was just completely wowed by the story. It's so powerful, so painful, but a story that really needed to be more broadly told. That book itself is amazing. It's a German translation of an originally Norwegian book. The Norwegian book was written by a missionary who had been friends with Sahai in Ethiopia, and the two of them spoke together in Amharic, which is the national language of Ethiopia, but was a second language for both of them. So this, this story went through quite a translation process before it finally got to me, and then I translated it further into English. And when I was done with that, I was like, this, this story has got to be shared with the world. So um, Samuel and I put our heads together and brought forward a proposal for a book that had the, my English translation of Sahai's story. The other great thing about that is Sahai was still alive at the time. She died in 2014. And her daughters, um, Lensa and Esther, primarily read the book and were able to check through it for accuracy because no one had ever actually read the Norwegian or the German version of it before. So, uh, and, you know, check the details with Sahai. So ours can be considered the authorized version of their biography. <laughs> Um, with, you know, the, the full approval of the original voice within it. And then we put that together with a, a fresh edition of all of his writings. Um, if I would be allowed a brief moment to grouse here, I thought this was a no-brainer sale <laughs> to contemporary publishers who I thought were really interested in expanding global voices to the North American uh, markets. But I have to say, I will not name names, but the first two major important publishers of Protestant theology that I brought this book to were totally met in their response like well global mission books don't sell and you know i just just like aren't people thirsting and hungering for good works from the global south good stories and moreover this is of a couple i mean how often in history do you have a couple who are equally significant confessors and witnesses to christ so finally thanks to the wonderful graces of lutheran quarterly books and paul Rorm, the series editor we finally found a home for it and i'm very happy to say it is now published so i hope this uh, episode inspires people to learn more about their story well that's great um why don't you give us the title of the book and i'm i'm sure people will have to look online to see how to spell the names of these ethiopian peoples <laughs> okay good the book is called the life works and witness of sahai tolesa and gudina tumsa comma the ethiopian bonhoeffer and are you listed as the editor yeah samuel and i are the two editors of the book okay okay yeah. very good Okay, yeah. well then, why don't you launch us into it and give us a brief outline of Gudina's life? 
Sure. And just a, a quick note, um, Ethiopians' last names are generally their father's first names. So it makes sense to refer to them like, so Gudina Tumsa, we call him Gudina, not Tumsa, because Tumsa is his father's name. Just notabene there for listeners. Okay. So um, their stories are pretty amazing, and we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to be as, as efficient as I can. So Gudina is born in 1929, uh, starts school at the age of 10, hears about Christ, um, comes to believe, and also comes to disbelieve in the uh, false gods and idols and witchcraft magic that are practiced in his rural village. So he chops down his magician uncle's tree, kind of like Gideon in uh, the Old Testament. Oh, or like St. Boniface, and yeah, chopping yeah, down the right. sacred oak tree. Yeah. Exactly. Um, he has to get the heck out of Dodge after that. So he basically leaves his family and never goes back, but he ends up at a Swedish mission school, um, grows up there, gets his education there, becomes an interpreter and an evangelist. Um, as soon as he could, it seems, he went out on preaching tours around the country. Um, one of the uh, inspirational things about him, but also one of the tragedies, is that as an evangelist, he preached his entire life, but there is no record of any of his sermons. There's only a few memories that people have put together, but um, it would have been amazing if there could have been even audio recording. But uh, no, he, he just preached. Um, and one of the significance, um, kind of the center of his message was Christ saves from all things, from demons, as well as from illness, as well as from political oppression. And that became kind of his hallmark is this holistic understanding of salvation. Yeah, he also saves from sin, I'm sure. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry. That, that was so self-evident in, in the mission world that it was the other parts that I thought to add in. Okay. Um, so he also trained to be a surgeon's assistant, and the medical training helped him, too, and also helped support the family. In 1951, he met Sahai Tolesa and married her. So a brief word about her. She came from a very poor village. Um, her early life was marked by tragedy. Some of her earliest memories were the Italian's leaving Ethiopia um, at the end of their approximately five-year occupation that came to an end with World War II, but they just burned everything in their wake, and um, it was just, there's a story in her autobiography of just running from a fire, taking over the entire landscape, and then there are um, slave hunters all over the place, children were getting kidnapped, there was incredible famine, there was incredible illness, just, again, a really brutal life. Um, and her, her mother died quite young. Um, her father was, was killed as well. So she ends up also at a Swedish mission school, and that's how they eventually met. They both loved the education and loved each other. They fell wildly in love and were quite um, a romance. That's not necessarily the way um, marriages normally happen <laughs> anywhere in the world or in any period in the world, but they were notable for being um, deeply passionate about each other. So for the next 10 years, they continued to work with the church. They were evangelists. Um, Gudina got his basic um, seminary training in Ethiopia. He went on preaching tours in different parts of the country. Um, at one time, when he was an extended tour down in the south of Ethiopia, Sahai even came with him, and she evangelized as well. She was a preacher, too. Um, and then he was, Gudina was recognized as being so talented that he was offered um, a year at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. And once he got there his talent was so immense that they decided to keep him on so he could earn a full BDiv, which is what all MDivs used to be, um, Bachelor of Divinity. Bachelor of Divinity, yeah. Right. So he was there from 1963 to 1966. And times being what they were, the family was separated the whole time. There was no way for him to return home. But um, interestingly, while he was there, among the other things he discovered were the um, civil rights movement that was growing, of course, in the United States in the 60s. And also, seems to me, beyond any question of a doubt, he had to have read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship because he makes some significant references to it in his works. And uh -huh. the English edition would have already been available and very well known at that time. Um, it's, it's striking. Um, the, the Ethiopian Bonhoeffer part I'll get to in a little bit, but uh, it, one of the many interesting parallels in their life is the significance of some time in the United States studying. Uh -huh. When he returned back to Ethiopia in 1966, he was promptly named General Secretary of the church there. Um, now, a brief word about the name. It was originally called the Ethiopian Evangelical Church Mekane Jesus. Um, the Ethiopian was detached for a while by um, imperial mandate because they felt only the Ethiopian Orthodox Church was allowed to call itself Ethiopian. 
Um, the evangelical means evangelical in the broad Protestant sense, more common in Europe. Uh, the church itself is largely composed of uh, the result of Lutheran missions, but there is a small Presbyterian Reformed mission that also became part of it. So the word evangelical is more expansive. So again, its theological identity is predominantly Lutheran, but there's also this Presbyterian elements. And Mekana Jesus is, um, means house of Jesus. So sometimes we call it the EECMY and sometimes the ECMY, but Mekana Jesus is the easiest and most, uh, in English sounds nicest way to refer to it. So he promptly became the general secretary and worked like crazy in the next 13 years doing all kinds of things. He became very prominent. He traveled a lot. He was even in Tokyo once. I recently uh, rediscovered when I was going over my notes for various consultations and uh, became a really strong advocate of um, holistic mission, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. In 1974, though, the big thing happened that altered the course of everyone's life and set in course his death, which is that there was a brutal coup d'etat of the imperial house that's Haile Selassie. People have probably heard his name in connection with Rastafarians, but that was the guy who was still the, the emperor. Um, it's worth noting that Gudina was also very critical of the imperial regime. In fact, in the standard prayers of the Mekaniasus um, church, you were supposed to pray for, uh, I mean, in, in the worship setting, you were supposed to pray for the um, long life, maybe everlasting reign of the imperial house. And he refused to do it, which was quite politically risky to do so saying that because of their injustice, especially because of the uh, kind of a feudalistic land system that guaranteed the constant poverty of the peasants and concentration of power in the hands of aristocrats, he could not sincerely pray or hope for the imperial regime going on forever. But uh, as you've uh, mentioned before, Dad, in the case of you send out one demon and seven come in its place, the uh, the end of the imperial regime was not the um, not what the Derg promised it would be. May I make a comment here, Sarah? This, uh, what the context that you're giving, I think, is extremely useful. It's also significant, I think, for our listeners. Our previous discussions of the two kingdoms doctrine uh, presuppose that we are living in relatively mature, that at least long-standing, lawful regimes which have significant elements of democratic governance in them. And so this is not to be universalized, as you're pointing out, when you are in a situation of imperialism, within imperialism, a regime that is not acting on in service to the population, but lording it over them. The two kingdoms doctrine is going to require you to respond to that in a different way than it would be in a fundamentally legitimate a politically legitimate uh, democratic regime. Yeah, thanks. That's a great correction and or supplementation to our last two episodes. And that's why I also wanted to bring this story forward because in my, uh, for instance, last um, November when I taught my annual course in, in Wittenberg, our topic was temporal authority in two kingdoms in Luther. And we had a number of students who come from uh, Islamic regimes that are overtly hostile to a Christian presence there. And of course, that's very different from, say, yeah. Canada or Australia and the kind of issues that Christians face there. So, yeah. Or Japan. Or Japan, yeah, yeah. The Well, J Japan is more like Canada and Australia than it is like those regimes. Um, and that also prompts me to just so, so readers, or sorry, so listeners know the, the Lutheran Church at the time, Asus, was very weak. It had maybe 200,000 members. It is not the 8 or 9 million member church it is today, though probably its growth has a lot to do with some of the foundations that Gudina laid in his time, especially openness to the charismatic renewal. But that will be a topic for another time. But I've heard people wonder nervously if the Lutherans came in and proselytized the, the Ethiopian Orthodox there. And so just to lay those fears to rest... Um, in fact, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is largely dominated by the Amhara people, from which we get the word Amharic for the language. They had never made any effort at all to evangelize the Oromo people. That's where Gudina and Sahai come from. And they are a huge, huge group within Ethiopia, though certainly not the only one. There are many ethnic groups there. So the Swedish and German missionaries in the 19th century went to the Oromo and with uh, working with a couple of um, slaves that they had redeemed from slavery, mainly Astragano and Onesimus Nesib, a name people might 
recognize and have puzzled over in the ELCA calendar of saints. They help translate the Bible into Oromo for the first time and bring the gospel for the first time to the Oromo people. So that's where the hugest growth has been. Anyway, since then, of course, there have been some Amhara people who have willingly joined, but they were not, quote unquote, proselytized in this way. So again, there was also a sense that there, the gospel was always there in Ethiopia, but it was not brought to Gudina's people, and that's why he was such a passionate evangelist. So anyway, so to, to, to get to the crisis point of his story, um, though Gudina was very outspoken, and he tried at first to find ways for uh, socialism and Christianity to work together, it did not take him very long at all to realize that there was going to be no future, no friendly future together for a regime that on principle said there was no God and no one was allowed to believe or say there was any God, and Christianity. <laughs> Obviously, there was going to be a conflict there, and he saw it growing, and the abuses of the regime were swift and horrible, and he spoke out against them. But probably the thing that finally triggered the government to register him as a danger to be removed is his activity in forming the Ethiopian Council of Churches. Now, I know a lot of people out there do not think ecumenism is exciting, important, or sexy. But in this case, um, and again, an interesting parallel to Bonhoeffer, ecumenism probably led directly to his death. It was wow. his ability to bring even, you know, he was actually talking to the Orthodox churches and a lot of Protestants were not comfortable with that. He was talking to the Catholics, also some awkwardness around there, but he said, we need to pull together and speak truth to power. And that was why they finally targeted him and removed him. That That's, uh, can I make a comment here too? Uh, if you think back to our podcast on Osuski, what an interesting contrast the history you've just recounted makes to the history there, because so hostile were the relations between the Lutherans and the Catholics. And after the close of World War II, the uh, attempt of the Lutherans to capitalize on their resistance to fascism to distinguish themselves from the discredited Catholics who had allied themselves with fascism weakened both churches in response to the rise of Marxism. There was no ecumenical uh, solidarity at that time. And as a result, when Osuski was booted off the faculty, just before that, the dean who had come to power and who was uh, advocating collaboration with uh, the Marxist regime, and he said quite vociferously, it's useless to get involved in ideological conflicts with the regime. We simply have to set that on the back burner, ignore that, and cooperate with the Marxist regime in peace-building efforts and other kinds of social works. Yeah, well, it didn't turn out that way here at all. <laughs> That's right. And, By contrast, quite different. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say uh, inter-Christian hostility is a luxury for peacetimes and functioning democracies, but uh, beware to the extent that um, not paying attention will lead to the downfall of both. So. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, what finally happened is that um, after several warnings, he'd been arrested a couple of times, and he, he, Gudina knew it was coming. He was even given opportunities to escape by his many Western friends and advocates. But like Bonhoeffer, he said, I have to stay. I can't, I can't leave my country and what they're going through. And so finally, in um, July of 1979, he was kidnapped right off the street, coming home from a Bible study. It was known that he was there teaching. They took Sahai too, but they were put in separate cars. She never saw him again. And then nothing, nothing was known about him until the regime ended in 1991. So his poor family went through 12, 13 years of just having no idea if he was still alive, if he was in prison somewhere. They were pretty sure he was dead, but the regime denied all knowledge. In fact, um, as I'll get to in a bit, when Sahai was arrested, part of their interrogation of her is, where is Gudina? Where is he hiding? like leading her, like suggesting that she knew and they didn't. In 1992, after about a year of searching, one of Gudina's brothers, following a lot of false trails, finally found a soldier who had witnessed the assassination and brought him with, um, by this point, a camera crew because they needed to have you know, evidence for the world to see, to one of the imperial palaces that was known to be used by the Derg regime for killing, basically, and then partying afterwards. And he 
uh, brought them to the spots and they started digging and they, Gudina was, and he was something like six foot six. He was really huge. Um, and even in, in death, 12, 13 years later, his body was recognizable. So they, um, they exhumed him and gave him a Christian burial in, um, in 1992. And then it was known for sure. And the soldier says there, there's several different, and again, this is interesting, kind of like Bonhoeffer, some competing stories, but he was either assassinated the very night he was arrested, the next night or about a, a week later, possibly strangulation by wire. Um, it's not quite clear how it happens. So that was the end of his story. And um, so he's, I think, very much rightly recognized as a martyr. But um, probably in some horrible way, he was the lucky one because he died swiftly and it was over. But about half a year after his assassination, his wife, Sahai, was arrested again. She was never accused, never tried, certainly no verdict. She was simply taken and tortured in really brutal ways. I won't go into it here. I just advise you to have a, a strong stomach before you go into reading the biography in the book. But for a, um, a, you know, an older woman, for young men to treat her this way is just utterly appalling. And her, among other things, her collarbone, her collarbone broke and was not reset until she was released from prison 10 years later. And, um, yeah, for years was just stuffed into a tiny room with lots of other people. There were random executions all the time, completely inadequate sanitary facilities, no heating, barely any food to speak of, just uh, everything you can imagine about the horrors of a careless totalitarian regime that simply imprisoned people for whatever whim it had at hand. Interestingly, towards the end of her stay, Mengistu, the Derg um, dictator, came for a tour of the prison and she saw him and she stood up straight before him, which was not an easy thing to do given the condition of her body. And he asked her what she was in there for. And she says, I don't know. I have never been tried or sentenced. And he said, you you don't know. And she said, no, they've simply kept me here all these years. And then he moved on. And the people around her said, why didn't you beg him for clemency to get him out, to get you out of here? And she said, I beg no one. I pray to God alone. I will not bow down before that man. But alongside this horror, her testimony is a profound sense of Christ's closeness to her and assurance to her. And she had a vision early on saying, I will let you out. You will get out. And so she lived by that, a promise that did not come to fruition for 10 years. And then when it did, it was as arbitrary as her arrest. Just one day she said she was washing her hair. She actually had water to wash with at that point. And somebody called called her name over the loudspeaker and she didn't even pay attention and her friends had to force her to get dressed and go out because she was just completely unconvinced anything good could happen and so she just exited through these gates and got on a bus and I think she probably expected to be executed in some other location but then just in a random part of the city they just said all right everybody off the bus go home <laughs> so she was just standing there in the middle of nowhere wow and, and with another prison friends, they made their way back to the mission. And at first, people didn't even recognize her. And then all of a sudden, she was free. She'd been on, I think, Amnesty International and other prison watch lists. And then anyway, she, she got medical treatment, was restored to her family. All of her children, um, two had died. One as a child, one, one older probably from being uh, attacked by a, a gang of Marxist youth that left him lasting injuries. And the rest all just fled. None of them were even in Ethiopia anymore. But anyway, she was finally um, restored to them. And she started a congregation as a thanksgiving to God, which is still going now. Oh. And at the last was able to tell her story and got written down. And then, as I told by this long process, finally got published. What an amazing story. Wow. Why don't you tell us some of the particular ideas or initiatives that Godina made in his career? I think the three major areas of thought that occupied him, at least that have come down to us in his writings, like I said, we have no sermons and all of his, almost all of his papers from his time as general secretary were seized and destroyed by the Derg and all his seminary papers in the U.S. were in a ship that went down in the Suez Canal or something bizarre like that. So mm. what we have here is such a small fraction of his outputs. So we have to reconstruct as best we can. But his, his three major areas of interest were what it means to be a church what mission is, and then finally, uh, political issues, of course, that, that came up so sharply in his lifetime. So another uh, interesting parallel to Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that his first writing that we have is about the nature of the church, as uh, Bonhoeffer started his, his uh, publishing career with Sanctorum Communio. 
And he gives a, you know, he goes right to Augsburg Confession 7, <laughs> got his good Lutheran training there, um, and gives a very Christocentric definition of the church. Um, and it, it, it's striking how much he de-emphasizes the static institutional aspects of the church. Apparently, even in a small Lutheran church in Ethiopia in the 1960s, it was possible to have a very club mentality about church. And Mm -hmm. he was the one who really stressed that a congregation exists for the sake of the people who are not in it. It exists, it is God's organization or body to evangelize, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world, and that a congregation must always be centered on Christ and his work, and therefore be outward-looking. And the structures of the church are purely functional. I mean, they exist in order to serve the mission, and that that order has to be always preserved, that the, the function is for the sake of the mission. And uh, it, evidently, it worked tremendously well. The the church there, uh, he made the interesting observation that the growth really happened when the missionaries left. That so they they set the important foundation. They got the ball rolling. They gave them the scripture and the basic um, liturgy and so forth. But when they left during World War II. There was no choice but for the Ethiopians to undertake evangelism themselves, and that's when they started to grow and just, you know, went like crazy ever after. Mm-hmm. So he spent a lot of time talking about evangelism, and a number of his early writings that we collected in the book are about these things like he calls stewardship of the gospel and so forth. And that led to some very interesting conflicts, um, uh, maybe in his more mature period, like late 60s, early 70s, over the aid relationship between North and South. And although this isn't um, directly political, um, I, I think it it sheds light on the, some of the wider issues that we've been talking about in this two kingdoms or temporal authority thing, which is, of course, that... Um, the the mission the mission movement came largely out of Europe and North America into other parts of the world and even when it was no longer predominantly um, what do we say conversion oriented ministry um, the money was still <laughs> still flowing from north to south or from right. west to east and um, there was at this point a lot of the African churches were beginning to reassess their relationship to their to their mission sponsors. Probably a lot of people out there feel even kind of a aversion to the word missionary. I lay a lot of the blame at the feet of Barbara Kingsolver's um, novel, The Poisonwood Bible, which seems to have convinced everybody that all missionaries are, I don't know, self-righteous and, and corrupt and I don't know. But uh, missionary is not like a admirable term the way it probably was when you were growing up, Dad. No, it was an honorable term when when I was a child in the 50s, yeah. Yeah, I remember when we were on our way to Japan, someone saying to us, well, why why are you going to Japan with Christianity? Don't they have their own religion there? And, you know, it's just a, a very simple, like, this is a competition between two different religions. Um, and uh, as if just religion are all interchangeable things, you know, blocks in people's life. But... Anyway, so, well, what interestingly, what had happened is a lot of the Western churches had internalized this critique, which long predates Barbara Kingsolver's novel, um, that they somehow, and they, uh, what Gudina says is they convinced themselves that they went with this empty spiritual message of, you know, pie in the sky, by and by, and left the people to suffer terribly. And Gudina said, that's just not true. In fact, the missionaries always did huge amounts of medical, educational, diaconal aid. And often they downplayed it because the churches back home wanted to hear more about, you know, how many baptisms or conversions or whatever. But missionaries on the ground, in his estimation, rarely made that mistake. They were very integrated in their mission and had a holistic perspective that Gudina endorsed very strongly. But what had happened is that now the Western donors only wanted to fund diaconal projects. They only wanted to do developments. They were very cagey or unwilling to do anything that was directly about evangelism, preaching, bringing people into the church. Well, you've heard this before, Dad. This isn't new to you, right? Yeah. But it's just so ironic. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, but so... The, the further irony of this is that Gudina understood this to be condescending and patronizing and assuming that Ethiopians, among others, 
were merely passive recipients of what the West had to give, and the West was deciding what it was going to give. And he said, we are a mature church. We are Christians, and we are agents. And you should regard us as agents both in our religious life, but also in our development life. You should pay attention to what we say we need, including in the diaconal area. And this critique is, you know, this is, has gone quite wide now, and even in, in a secular aid agencies, there's increasing recognition that this top-down, you know, charity from us down to you poor benighted people um, is not successful and that treating people like they're you know purely helpless objects who need your help rather than agents who have you know some some say in their own destiny is simply not fruitful at all so Gudina was arguing for a much more holistic approach to this whole thing. There also at this time came up this thing called the moratorium debate. And some of the, the African churches were more radical in their approach. And they decided um, their slogan was missionary go home, uh, including your dollars. And that they were proposing a complete severance of all financial aid from the West to the developing churches so that they could, you know, maybe for 10 years, would have to become self-reliant and find their footing and their theological identity without any more missionary interference. So clearly there were those um, in, in Africa who were really hostile to ongoing Western involvement. They were not um, still uh, thinking in a more uh, holistic, uh, also between different parts of the world way as Gudina was. And he argued very strongly against the moratorium. He said, yes, it is a goal of every church to become self-sustaining. And yes, we need to develop our own identity specific to our area. But we don't have the money, the West does, and to simply cut it off in the name of our, you know, identity is not going to serve the purposes of the gospel either. So he proposed instead something like a over time reducing the aid um, and finding ways for the church to raise its own money to conduct its activities. But he also saw that there was an ideology in completely severing the relationship that was also non-holistic. You really needed to maintain the relationship between the old mission agencies and in fact think that the younger churches had something positive and important to offer to the, the older churches. He even says that the whole definition of poverty and wealth is so materialistic. And as far as he could tell, Africans were a lot richer in matters of the spirit and family and emotion <laughs> than most Westerners were. And so <laughs> it would be hurting the Westerners to cut them off from what the, the Africans had to offer. Right. We could actually probably use a little bit of their evangelism enthusiasm here in the Western world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have talked to a few who have, um, you know, who have gone to Europe or America and, you know, uh, full of enthusiasm for how they were going to re-evangelize the West. And I think they have often been a little startled that it was harder than they thought it was going to yeah, be. Right. Um, you know, just like Western methods of doing things don't transplant so easily to Africa. I mean, it goes in the opposite direction to do it simply because you start a an exorcism ministry like in Madagascar or a preaching tour like in Ethiopia doesn't mean it will actually bring, you know, Norwegians or... Um, you know, we yeah. should probably have a podcast sometime, Sarah, on a, a new theology of evangelism for the Western world. I just sometimes think... When I was a pastor in upstate New York, the uh, district in which we lived was called in, in his church histories the burned-out district or the burned-over district. Right. And, and that was a reference to the fact that so many revivals had run through that area in the 19th and early 20th century that there was no fuel left for any more revivals. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, and well, and being in, uh, now for me, being a missionary, oh no, terrible word, in Japan and talking to other missionaries, I mean, there's almost no place on earth that's gotten more energy, personnel, money, devotion put into it with a smaller return. It's still, you know, only 1% of the Japanese population is Christian and it's the only place in Asia where it's shrinking. So, you know, what what is effective evangelism? It's not like there's a lack of people trying and innovating here. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think that if, if he had not been assassinated, that probably would have remained the center of Gudina's life work and passion. But clearly what he, he did, even in his short time as general secretary, he laid a foundation within the structure of the Mechaniasis church that made it a very um, lay evangelism-centered church. This is worth saying, too, that there are far, 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 far more lay evangelists working in the church than there are ordained pastors. In fact, I think they have nowhere near enough ordained pastors to cover all of their congregations. But there's no presumption that evangelism is primarily the job of the pastor. It's the job of the entire people, and they actually do it. 
And that's where the, again, along with the welcome of the charismatic revival led to the extraordinary growth of the McKinney Aces Church over the past 40 years. Mm-hmm. However, things did not continue as planned. So as I mentioned, in 1974, there was this violent coup d'etat booting out the imperial family. Um, the emperor and his family were also Im- imprisoned and, and Haile Selassie was, was assassinated the following year. And like all Marxist regimes, it promised great things. It was going to make everything equal, and it was going to make everything equal by nationalizing everything. So all land was nationalized, all industry, I mean, everything that there was to take was taken over by the government and put under its administration. And as usual, they did it very badly. Listeners of a certain age will no doubt remember seeing commercials on TV or news stories about the terrible famine in Ethiopia. And um, it was often assigned to drought, but actually the famine began before the drought began. And the famine began because of classic so-called communist mismanagement of uh, agricultural land and processes. So about a million people starved to death during that time because of that. Um, Then there was civil war from 1975 to 1977, but in the end, the Derg became a Soviet ally, got lots of um, arms from them and support, and uh, the Derg as such officially continued until 1987. Um, It was theoretically abolished, but the new government was all ex-Derg officials, so not really, Um, and the totalitarian regime as such did not end until 1991 with another coup d'etat. A lot of Derg officials were subsequently tried for genocide. So again, the the issue here is how do you um, maintain a very small and fragile church in a huge country with a very violent and hostile regime during this time? Right. Why don't you explain what the term Derg means? I, I'm... Oh, it's just the name of the of the communist regime that controlled Ethiopia. D E R G. Uh-huh. So you can just call it the Derg, like saying the, the Nazis. Derg. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Like All right. And the last number of papers we have of Gudina's collection are his responses trying to understand what's going on and how the church can or cannot relate to a socialist government. And at this point, Dad, I want to pause a little bit in my talking. Um, you have written and studied quite a bit about the relationship between Luther and Marxism and Marx's use of Luther and these issues. So I, and we covered it some in the Osuski episode, but why don't you just give us, um, again, in the context of our whole temporal authority, two kingdoms conversation some tools for thinking about what's coming up in Budina's story. Yeah, uh, very good. I think the Lutheran tradition was really sabotaged in terms of its relationship to the social question, as it was called during the period of industrialization in the 19th century, by a kind of inward focus that was really exaggerated by pietism. Though Some good scholars like Carter Lindbergh have argued that pietism had a lot more social conscience than than we realize. Probably like the missionaries. Probably like the missionaries, right? Uh, I think that's right. Though some of us, like I come from this Missouri Synod background where in in the late 1960s, the Synod had developed a statement on mission that emphasized holistic mission to both body and soul. It was as we put it in those days. And this was just one of the things that the reactionary right wing in the Missouri Senate thought was just the the camel's nose under the tent of Marxism creeping in to the Missouri <laughs> Senate. I mean, it was it just it's just because of uh, care for the body. Care for the body, yes, because uh, that's that's. Some, somebody, something other than evangelism. <laughs> the nursing movement came out of the deaconess movement. That's so uh, of weird. course it did. Of course it did. It was just uh, these dualisms, uh, body-soul dualisms, affecting these self-proclaimed most Lutheran of all people on the face of the earth. It's just ridiculous. Uh, anyway, I, I want to quote Osuski here. If Christians were more social, then perhaps socialism would be more Christian. Mm, mm. I think that's a really wise observation. Uh, I don't think it's a problem so much in my denomination, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. In fact, sometimes I worry that we have become like those missionary agencies you were describing that refuse to do anything but diaconia. Yeah, I (laughs) think our our problem is more on the other side. Right. 
but let's let's just stick to the issue here of of the possibility of cooperating with socialism you know and you can give various labels to these kinds of concerns for a holistic ministry to body and soul call it a social gospel or a social concern or a social conscience and so forth and so on i think that when it comes to marxism what is underappreciated by and what Godina discovered very quickly, what is underappreciated by people who frequently say the church must have a more holistic mission and we must attend to the needs of the body as well as the soul. What's underappreciated is that Marxism actually wants to remake human nature. I mean, that's the fundamental idea that human nature is infinitely malleable and that the revolution means that all the uh, oppressive conditions which have warped the soul by exploiting the bodies of people under capitalism, all of that now will be totally remade as the ownership of the means of the production are owned by the uh, working class and the benefits distributed justly and so forth. The problem, of course, that Marxists discovered in advancing their program is that the workers lack this fervent revolutionary consciousness. In fact, they're really satisfied with bread and circuses. Improve their living conditions a little bit, (laughs) you know, uh, um, make some reforms, make their lives incrementally better, and they lose all their revolutionary fervor. In and fact, they, they, they hope to just become like the bourgeois. Right, they become <laughs> the petty great bourgeois. disappointment of the proletariat everywhere. Right, they become petty bourgeois, little bourgeoisie that want nothing but a you know to have a four wheeler and go uh, riding on the weekends with a case of beer. Right. So that's where Leninism comes in. Vladimir Lenin argued that the failure of Marxism hitherto was because it put much too much faith in the working class. What the, what the working class needed was an avant-garde, a leading edge of intellectuals who understood Marxist theory so that they could guide or, as another expression of Lenin's, be the dictatorship of the proletariat that would make sure that the working class stayed true to the ambition of a total remake of human nature. And this is where the totalitarian ambitions of Marxism-Leninism originate in this uh, new synthesis uh, that Lenin made of of Marxist traditions in the early 20th century. Yeah, I think the two polarities of that are both the the very false belief in the infinite malleability of the human person. I think Americans, uh, you know, of which we are, fail to understand how essential that is to the the truly true Marxist program. And on the other side, the solution to to mallying, <laughs> to to shaping human nature through dictatorship. And the two pla- I mean, two places where this succeeded, of course, were Russia, which was not working class; it was peasants. And that's the same thing that happened in Ethiopia. It was a peasant society, not a working class society where it was easy for dictators to come in and seize control because they had the guns and no one else did right we will drive the people to happiness with an iron fist (laughs) that is the that is the slogan of all these forms of totalitarianism yeah and what it means is that just the gangsters take over yeah all right. So to go back to Gudina now. So the, the few documents we have from the last part of his life. Let's see, I think there are five we're going to look at briefly here. So the first one in 1975, he writes a pastoral letter, the Evangelical Church Mechaniasis and the Ethiopian Revolution. This is clearly him just, it's a little bit vague, but he's just trying to make the best of a bad situation and figure out like what we can do, how, you know, uh, he's still hopeful at this point, recognizing as he has, a, like again, like Bonhoeffer, he grew up in an imperial regime. That's all he'd known. So, you know, the hope is that maybe now things will get better. The land reform will happen. They're promising, you know, that people can use their, their tribal languages, not just Amharic, and they're going to set up schools. So maybe this is for the best. A little bit later in the year, then also 1975, he writes a memorandum 
Um, a lot of these are things written for the like the the council or governing body of the Mekeniasus Church, and so there's some really practical questions they have to solve. So here's an interesting thing: the church had set up diaconal projects in schools because the imperial government wouldn't do it. But then when the Derg came into power, it announced that all these matters would come under government care. So this is the idea. And again, this is this is something that's quite reflexive now, even in um, non-socialist societies, that somebody should do something and that should be the government. Like every important thing that needs to happen for human care should ultimately be under the auspices of the government. That's what the government exists to do. So, you know, when you talk about um, you know, uh, insurance or medical care or education or social work. Like, it's just self-evident to us now the government should be in charge. If you have a government that is um, less intrusive, say, like we are still blessed with in the United States, that can be an okay solution. But what happens when you have a totalizing government? Is it actually a good thing when it promises to take over all care, at least of people's bodies and to an extent of their souls if they're doing also like education? Well, the problem was that the Derg wanted to repossess all of these diaconal and educational institutions, along with all of the industry it was taking. And Gudina's initial response was, we should let them do that. If they are really going to be responsible for people's bodies, and if they're competent to do it, he's assuming that they are, that's fine. Um, furthermore, he realized, this is interesting, the witness of the church was being somewhat compromised because people popularly perceived these institutions as being profit-making centers for the church. They thought that they were there to raise money or to, you know, get rich. And he said, you know, people don't know that these are nonprofits, and as long as they are standing in the way of our witness, we should let them go freely if someone else is willing to take them over. <laughs> And that it's important for us to make a witness. The only reason we do diaconal care or education is because Christ loves us and therefore we love Christ's people. And anything that interferes with that witness, we should simply let go of. Hmm. Uh, I mean, again, I, I don't. this is the sort of thing you have to discern for your own place and time. But I think that's quite striking that he was so committed to the single minded, uh, there's a single focus on proclaiming Christ's love that he was willing to lose the prestige of diaconia and education if that was necessary. He also made a proposal which was probably even less popular, which is he, the church undertook a survey of church workers' salaries and discovered some church workers were living under even the Ethiopian poverty line, while others were making a really good living. So he proposed that everybody who was under a certain amount would be brought up to it, and they, the way they would pay for that is by everyone over a certain line coming down and taking a voluntary salary reduction, and they would do their own redistributive justice. Um, uh -huh. Interesting. <laughs> and of course, he was, I think, going to have to be one of the ones to take a voluntary reduction since he was, you know, at the head of the church. He was making a, a pretty decent salary again by by Ethiopian standards. When I first read this, I thought this was amazing and a little bit hilarious to imagine American um, denominations where there would be a <laughs> redistribution of the uh, wealthiest pastors to the, the ones living in the small, well, small know, areas. Let me tell you, uh, about a year ago, I started putting out some short theses on Facebook about uh, what it would take to renew the church. And one of my theses was a proposal for salary equalization. And uh, the reason I say that is because if the church is to have word and sacrament ministries in underrepresented, underserved places, and we're going to maintain the kinds of quality ministry that we've traditionally insisted upon, uh, we have to find a way of financing that that doesn't cost extraordinary sacrifice by some while others are living you know in prosperous communities living high on the hog also in this era of incredible student debt it's just it, it's our basic justice issue for money for education oh, absolutely yeah. absolutely yes yeah, so so it's interesting how this is a cross-cultural issue <laughs> yeah yeah I would just say to that, I think it would make more sense to have wealthy congregations partner directly with poorer ones rather than go through like a central redistributing agency. Uh, that's definitely my uh, studies in communism saying cut out the uh, the, the centralizing <laughs> power. That doesn't make right. it better. And it just it removes a level of bureaucracy, which just wastes a lot of money that could be spent better on mission. I agree with that. Yeah. And better for there to be direct relationships, too. Anyway, from this, this so-called memorandum, I just want to... 
uh, read, there is one subsection of the paper entitled The Cost of Discipleship. I don't think he made that up out of nowhere. And the final paragraph in this section reads, The demands for the cost of discipleship will be met by various responses from each one of us. To some, it will mean a reduction of pay in a drastic way. To others, it will mean giving everything away to be members in farmers' associations. Those were communist collectives, you know. Still, to some who earn their means of living, either through the employment of wife or husband, it will mean serving in a different manner. Whichever may be the way we respond, the inevitable demand of the cost of discipleship is that the saving power of the gospel should be preached, regardless of the sacrifices it may entail. He makes reference to Romans 1, 17 and 18. So again, you know, in this shifting situation where it's really hard to know what's going on, his his um, criterion for determining what to do is that the gospel of the power of God has to be preached. And if that means joining a collective or if it means losing money, that's just part of it. You accept that as part of the sacrifice of discipleship. Um, then moving on in the next year, 1976, he gives a presentation called Unbelief from a Historical Perspective. And in the um, typescript, he is, there's hand, a handwritten note adding the word kairos, which of course is Greek for the time, the, you know, not ordinary time, but the time, a time of decision. And um, this is quite interesting because the first half of the paper is a history of unbelief or atheism, and it is essentially a Western history. And so in some some ways this western history has been appropriated and come to roost in Ethiopia first through the missionaries but secondly secondarily through the communists and so he gives a classic kind of western account of of unbelief and then he talks in turn about what is truly effective testimony against unbelief. And he argues quite beautifully in it um, that it is a life lived by faith and that faith can see possibilities and sees, th sees things happen that unbelief does not. There is um, a subtext here, which um, also appears in our collection, which is that um, Gudina had a brother named Baro, and Baro was um, brought to live with Gudina and Sahai. They basically raised him um, as, you know, um, well, nephew, son, you know, brother, that kind of relationship. Um, but Baro grew up, although he grew up in the church and still had an affiliation with it, he got caught up in the, the Derg ideology and became an important ranking official in the government. And so he was invited to give a talk at a, a church assembly of some kind to kind of state the government thing. And I think there was hope that because he'd been raised in the church, he would be a, a mediating force. But he gave a talk, which is in the book called The Church and Ideologies, which gives just a totally boilerplate Marxist account of religion, um, includes a not-so-subtle warning to the church not to interfere with the Derg's social and political programs, and concludes, these are the last words of his paper, I see no contradiction of this program with that of the goals of the church. Maybe in certain areas, the church might have to reorient its method of work to the changing situation and the capability to adapt to new situations becomes imperative for survival. <clears throat> it is hard not to hear the very unmistakable threat there, which is you go back to your pie in the sky and stay out of what we're doing and adapt as necessary. But his idea that they have the same goals is clearly uh, refusing to see religion for anything other than its materialist possibilities, not its spiritual possibilities at all. Uh, you know, that reminds me of Gustav Husak, the communist dictators. Oh, yeah, uh, right, right. In Czechoslovakia, what he said to the Lutherans in 1948 in Czechoslovakia, after they'd come to, the communists had come to power, he said ominously, you know, you Lutherans have had a very progressive history. Just remember that what was progressive yesterday becomes reactionary tomorrow. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Yeah, you, you don't serve Christ, you serve us. <laughs> and if you stop serving us, you will stop existing. Yeah. Right. All right, well, yep. we're getting towards the end of our hour, so let me wrap this up. Um, in 1978, Gudina wrote The Responsibility of the ECMY Toward Ecumenical Harmony, where he talks about the importance of ecumenism, possibility of joining the WCC, reaching out to the Orthodox Church. As I said, this is probably really what led him directly towards his assassination. And I do want to note that the Ethiopian Orthodox Patriarch Tewoflos, I don't know if I pronounced that right, um, was seized and martyred either on the same day or the day before Gudina. They were taken at the same time. So mm -hmm. as we have so often seen, uh, finally in martyrdom, all interconfessional boundaries are erased. 
that uh, they, they died together for Christ, as happened there. Then finally, the last written document we have of Gudina's is for 1979. It was composed um, after his first two arrests and before his final uh, seizure and assassination. And it's popularly considered his theological last will and testament. He probably wrote it knowing that it was going to be his, his last his last word to the world. It's called The Role of a Christian in a Given Society. So in the first section called The Christian in Society, he gives a basic description of Christian life in very classical, familiar terms about Christ's sacrifice, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the community of the church, the Holy Communion, forgiveness of sins, and so forth. In the second section, he talks uh, about how a Christian is responsible to God and man. And he says, uh, this is a wonderful line, the creator and redeemer of the Christian has total claim on the life of the one who confesses him as Lord and Savior. So that's where the only appropriate totalitarianism lies. That's my comment, not his. Now to go back to Gudina. Uh, Gudina says, when the Christian confesses that Christ is Lord, he proclaims that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the president of presidents, the chairman of chairmen the ruler of rulers, the secretary of secretaries, the leader of leaders, and the head of the heads of state. King so, of kings and lord of lords. Yes. And chairman of chairmen. <laughs> That's, you know, that sounds very silly, but those are fighting words, my goodness, yep. in, in that uh, communist environment. So he talks about in detail what is an appropriate way to help the Derg state but he also says where the limits are and that it is essential for every believer to truly know the content of the Christian faith. And he's still trying to open up some space for cooperation, for civil cooperation. He says, in my opinion, a Christian has to make a choice only when he is faced with the demand not to confess Christ as Lord and when they are denied the right to teach in his name. And he refers to Acts 4. Later on, he will also refer to Acts 5. 29, which you may recall from the Augsburg Confession and other confessional documents, that actually is the, the seed verse for the Lutheran tradition of civil resistance or non, non-compliance with abusive mm-hmm. regimes. So then Gudina continues, a responsible Christian does not aggravate any situation and thereby court martyrdom. A Christian goes as a lamb to be slaughtered only when he knows that this is in complete accord with the will of God who has called him to this service. Uh, You can imagine that Gudina is stealing himself knowing what's coming. Right. Then he makes an overtly anti-Marxist statement. He says, the good news of Jesus Christ can never be seen as part of the systems that came about at various stages in the process of historical development and world history. The gospel is the power of God working in the human heart with a view to transforming man and thereby putting him in a right relationship with God. Christianity cannot be identified with feudalism or capitalism, for Christ himself is the gospel. And then finally, the last bit, and this is, again, another reason why he's been called the the Ethiopian Bonhoeffer. In his concluding paragraph, he begins, As someone has said, when a person is called to follow Christ, that person is called to die. And this is referring to the original English translation of the cost of discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So again, clearly Gudina read this years before in his education and it stayed with him. Um, And for my own interest in the, in, sainthood or holiness, I'm struck that the testimony of Bonhoeffer was able to be there with Gudina and help him face his own end faithfully. And his last comment is, the only limitation to Christians' cooperation or obedience to the laws of the country is if they are commanded to act contrary to the law of God, Acts 5.29. So he really went in with eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing, he knew what he believed, and he knew what the cost would be, and prepared himself and left his own final witness to help Christians in the future face their own struggles with the state. What I find so interesting about this, Sarah, is how precisely he focuses in on uh, the contradiction to the confession of faith, that right. he's he's willing to cooperate with the socialist regime uh, in every respect, except the red line that gets crossed is the requirement to be silent about Christ or to deny Christ, or effectively to deny Christ. So this is a you know the very precise causus confessionis from right. the uh, confessional writings, uh, and not it, it is not extended into a laundry list of other uh, 
otherwise highly legitimate social justice concerns, but it's quite precisely the confession of Christ. Right. And his willingness to keep trying to give the benefit of the doubt, and I think probably to prevent further bloodshed, is his his motivation there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's only when finally they give you no choice, that's when martyrdom comes into the horizon. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that we have um, gotten listeners very intrigued and moved by this amazing story of these two amazing people. And again, um, I just summarized his wife Sahai's story, but it is powerful and beautiful and inspiring and hard to stomach in places. But again, as we so often hear, persecuted Christians have an experience of Christ's presence that those who live in peace and luxury can only imagine. So, uh, But I hope that uh, your imagination will be expanded by their story and Gudina will become part of our standard set of references for great Lutherans, um, great Christians indeed. I hope so too. Very moving story, Sarah. Thank you. Great. All right. And next time on the show, we will be talking about St. Paul among the philosophers. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.